Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora. I'm Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today, and as usual, I am joined by Dr. Nigam Marora. Welcome, everybody. Other members of our group this week are our friends, such as our resident GMP expert from the GMB Collective. Hello, David Valancourt. Hey, good day, everybody. And we're welcoming to the show for the first time a legal expert in the space, Kim Napoli. Cannabis advocacy and policy is her passion. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. So we have a really fun show for you today. Our rapid science conversation will discuss a chapter in a new book on about how GMP should be mandatory for the cannabis industry. We'll discuss new research into bad trips associated with psychedelics and why they might have therapeutic utility. But we're going to begin with talking about some recent news coverage about mushrooms resetting the brain, ketamine and cannabis doctor visits, as well as a story about cannabis safety regulations. And of course, we're going to end today with a game that will test your critical thinking abilities related to today's subjects. And away we go. So with our news section, the BBC has recently reported coverage on a psychedelic study. They interviewed a research team from the Imperial College in London. This was a small study which gave 19 patients a single dose of the psychedelic ingredient, psilocybin. Um, reported by the BBC, half the patients ceased to be depressed and experienced changes in their brain activity that lasted weeks. Um, and there were no shortages of analogies and superlatives flowing from both the researchers and patients' mouths. Um, to quote the article, patients were very ready to use analogies without any priming. They would say, I've been reset, reborn, rebooted. And one patient said his brain had been defragged and then clean up, cleaned up. Um, so I pose this to the group. Do these analogies really help, um, you know, resetting the brain, defragging the brain, lubricant for the brain? What does this really mean? You know, personally, when I'm giving presentations and talking to students, I like to tell them to think of your brain as an inverse parallelogram. Um, but, you know, if a business is looking at these and saying, I want to market the reset product or the brain defragmentation pill, are these analogies helpful, harmful, or both? Uh, I want to ask you, Kim, what are your thoughts or impressions on these types of analogies for psychedelics? I think they make a lot of sense. Um... We're always looking to make connections, and you know, and that's I think the way that we really begin to understand things by drawing associations um, and comparisons to other things that we have distinct familiarity with. So, for me, for instance, when when you say defragging, like that just makes so much sense. I think about my computer before I've defragmented it, and and then after, and it's like it all works now. So that's definitely what I feel like happens when you have a good mushroom trip. You know, that just to me makes perfect sense. So I think overall, I think these analogies are really helpful in marketing um, psychoactive. Okay, great, great. Um, you know, David, uh, if you went to the computer store to get your depressed hard drive fixed and they moved all your documents to different folders and said, hey, we cleared your desktop, it's been reborn, would you be upset or thankful? Or is that just a bad Marku analogy? Um, maybe it's a little too soon. Um, <laughs> I would say in reality though, um, you know, all, all jokes aside that, you know, it's compelling, right? And when I read the, uh, the research here, read the summary, uh, I love the fact that folks were compelled to say those words and that that's meaningful and that's profound. Um, there is obviously to take your, uh, defrag analogy and cleaning up my organization. Um, there, there's something to be said there in terms of, 
the bad trips ideas, which I know we'll get into later. Um, so it is careful. And from a marketing pers- from a marketing perspective, I think it's really important to be careful as well. And this is where a lot of cannabis businesses get in in trouble and from an FDA perspective, warning letters come out when this drug cures cancer or, oh, COVID-19 is cured by this this drug. Well, is there sufficient clinical evidence? And you know, this is the starting point, but we have to be careful before we jump to marketing it, I think. I completely agree, David. And, you know, that's one of my concerns, you know, just to draw a similar analogy, stress is not a medical condition, but anxiety is. I don't know if resetting the brain is going to be like a big neuroscience therapeutic treatment. So, uh, Negum, you've 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 heard, you know, Kim and David's comments. What would you like to add to this discussion about psychedelics analogies? Keep them coming, refine them. We haven't hit the right one yet. What so are your thoughts? Keep keep them coming for sure. But I think a um, couple things. Uh, I did look into the study in some detail. One, uh, this was. 19 people with no control group. So everyone was making these positive, uh, saying these positive things, but there's no control. Additionally, um, these did seem to be uh, naive or we say naive or like first time users. So that's great. But I wonder what happens down the road. You know, is it the same the third time, the fifth time, uh, for many folks that deal with mental health issues or depression, it's not a one-time thing. So um, the what I really, really liked out of this was that they tracked this with MRI data. So that's something that in a lot of these articles we've reviewed, they don't um, quite do that. They say, hey, we did a survey. Hey, we talked to some people. Hey, we observed them. But here... Um, they're giving these people brain scans. Uh, so that's great. And they're actually tracking. My favorite part was that they're correlating it with known studies of depression where they do MRIs and they're actually showing that the certain areas of the brain are being activated or relieved. So, um, definitely promising work. Excellent comments, everyone. We're going to move on to our next story. Well, it's not so much a story, um, as, a clinical office that I found online. And before we go into the story, I just have to say that uh, How to Launch an Industry and its participants do not endorse or support any treatment or product. Uh, That should be a discussion with the doctor and something approved by the FDA. Um, And that is our legal disclaimer. So what I want to talk about is this website, neuromedici.com, where you can go in and get your cannabis card renewal along with an IV solution of ketamine at this Chicago office. Um, But I have some concerns, and I don't know if my guests share them too. Um, But, you know, uh, Nigam, you know, before you drop grandma off to get an IV ketamine infusion and the renewal for the medical cannabis card, what questions would you have about this operation? You know, you can take a look at the website. They, They offer treatment for a variety of conditions. But, you know, I have, uh, I feel like it's a bit of a black box approach. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so, um, Jehan, I remember when you initially uh, found this, I believe you had texted to me and, and we were kind of chatting about it ahead. And so uh, I looked into it, I had some time, and I, I have a, a lot of questions before dropping grandma off. So, <laughs> thank goodness, I'm glad. <laughs> to, to name a few, um, 
does my insurance cover this? Because the mood disorder ketamine infusion is 300 and the chronic pain infusion is 450 plus the 150 doctor's visit. Didn't say anything about insurance on the site. So I'm not sure about that. Um, other things that I would want to know generally, but especially for, you know, uh, family members or loved ones who kind of need this help, but maybe aren't medical experts. Is there an addiction risk? Can they drive themselves home? Is it R-ketamine? Is it S-ketamine? Is it a mix? I, there's people out here marketing mixtures of ketamine saying it's better. Um, one other thing I want to say, I'm just going to read a quote from the site, and then maybe I'll pass the mic. Uh, well, to frame it, I found that the website is only listing positive experiences, which is a little concerning for me and maybe concerning for folks out there who are real experts in this space. So I'm just going to read a quote. You may experience anything from being more of aware of how your body feels, quieting of the mind, feelings of love and gratitude, all the way to feeling connected to the universe slash God, death of your ego, and reliving past experiences from a different perspective. So wow. I don't know how grandma copes with all that. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad, but um, I don't know who wants to comment next. Yeah, I mean, what's, I'll jump in. What's interesting about that, you know, the loss of ego, that part is, you know, a nice way of saying, like, the most terrifying thing that can happen to a human being <laughs> without dying, because it's like dying while you're alive, I mean, and continuing <laughs> to live. So hearing that, I uh, share Nigam's concerns about grandma, you know. Um, <laughs> I also wonder... I also kind of wonder, like, are there going to, the next time, you know, Fish plays Wrigley, like, are there going to be a number of people lining up for this infusion before the show? <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, that's really the only other context that I think I frequently see people engaging in, in ketamine. Um, and they also don't mention the K-holes, you know, on the... <laughs> On the website, which... Well, what's a K-hole for our audience? I mean, I know what it is, but maybe, maybe our listeners don't. <laughs> sure. And I invite anyone else to jump in and help explain. But uh, a K-hole is really one of those things like you fall into and cannot emerge from until the experience just, you know, you, you go through the experience and come out the other side until the dosage has run its course through you. But it's all-consuming. It is inescapable. It's like a black hole. Um and maybe it's in this black hole that you have the death of ego and all those other <laughs> wonderful things that are being discussed on the website. But I think that there is a necessary piece of education that goes along with this, and I'm not seeing that here. So um, it's not to say that this is a, not a worthy experience, but I think that there is more, certainly more, that we need to know about it before we can, yeah. you know, recommend jumping, or at least before I would recommend that grandma, you know, get hooked up. Uh, Terrific points. A simple question for you, Kim. Is, is a cannabis advocate and, and a policy being your passion? Um, you know, obviously, you you have you want to protect patients. You want to protect public health. On a scale of one to impossible, how difficult do you think it would it be to regulate something like this and license it um, with our current yeah. cannabis programs? So if you were to take the laws that regulate cannabis and apply them to this, I think it would actually be easier in some respects because ketamine, you can get an exact dosage, you can get an exact formulation down. Cannabis, you don't have that. We have so many strains. The cannabinoid profiles are so wide and varying. Um, the cultivation techniques, the IPM, I mean, there's just so many different things that go into cannabis, whereas uh, ketamine is coming out of a lab, or should be, um, but, you know, some sort of... Uh, 
regulated uh, area that I think would produce uniform, reliable results. So I think in those respects, and then, the, you know, cannabis is on, it's like nuclear level, um, <laughs> security and protection and oversight. So if you took those same rules applied it to ketamine, I think that you could have a, a pretty good regulated structure. Um, but still, there's some some more information I think that needs to come out uh, to make folks uh, feel feel better about it and for it to be normalized in the way that cannabis has been. David, I uh, would like to share some of your thoughts. And also, Kim, terrific points. I, I, that was awesome. Sure, thanks. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I love all those points. The one, there's two things I would kind of add, or uh, I don't know if I want to stay playing devil's advocate, but we'll let the audience decide um, how I've taken this perspective. But, um, you know, we, we have one side of the coin, which is looking at pain, the history of pain clinics and, you know, those kinds of doctors that have gotten a bad rap and gone to jail because of the proliferation um, to the opioid epidemic. But there's also the other point of, um, hey, I want to go see fish tonight and or my grandmother's really wanting to do this and do I have to call to get my you know MDMA or ketamine or can I go to a safe place where there's some informed educated physicians with appropriate um, oversight to do this and so I think we have to kind of weigh those societal factors as well so in some ways I'm excited to see this pop up but I'm also I don't want it to turn to another pain clinic revolution. Terrific points uh, about this article. So uh, I hope the audience, if you're considering going to one of these clinics, that you will consider some of these points and questions. And remember, always ask questions before you go into any sort of experimental therapy. Uh, that's just some friendly uh, advice. Our next story is from Salon.com, and it's entitled Cannabis Regulatory Patchwork leaves holes in safety standards. So it is no secret for people living in the United States that the regulations change from state to state, sometimes from county to county, depending on how big your state is. And, um, you know, these standards, what is required for testing is also not uniform. And uh, many months ago, uh, actually in April, the United States Pharmacopeia, a you know, widely respected non-governmental organization who's put up safety standards for medicines, food ingredients, dietary supplements, and it's often adopted by the FDA, you know, their report came out. It's got some updated guidelines from the last monograph on pesticides, and metals, and biological contaminants, specifically for cannabis flower, for vaporized products but it seemed to gain little traction in the industry or among state regulators. Now, there is some concern here. I'm gonna quote Dr. Ethan Russo, um, one of uh, the most well-known researchers who is also a co-author of this paper and former president of the International Cannabinoid Research Society, who said, this didn't get a lot of play as much as I would have hoped. I did hope that people would be pointing to this and saying, look, now there are some standards on how you do things. It should be possible for the industry to have some targets and take them to heart. My feeling is unless the industry does it, it's going to be done very poorly by politicians. Uh, you know, my question to the group is, do you all agree with Ethan Russo's comment, his insinuation that politicians will do a poor job without the industry since the industry has all the insider knowledge? Kim, you know, you're passionate about policy. Do you think this rings true? Or, or what are your thoughts here? Um, I think it's always best to look at this as a group effort. Um, you know, I feel very strongly that just because someone is not knowledgeable in one area doesn't mean that they don't have benefits and strengths in another area. You really play to people's strengths. So 
um, looking across the aisle in politics or looking to folks who are outside of your particular industry is maybe not the first thing you would do when you're looking to stand up a new industry. Um, but I don't think you can do it properly without that outside insight, right? They have like um, just the objective vision that maybe those of us who are inside the industry don't have. So for me, I think, yes, the politicians uh, are are lacking in terms of like, the, in, you know, institutional knowledge and just knowledge of experience from being inside the cannabis industry, whether it's illicit or regulated. Um, and I think probably the illicit market has more of a knowledge base in some respects than, or at least a, a more a broader historical knowledge um, than the regulated, but the regulated industry, they have experts that, experts in following the regulations, which is a whole entire, um, you know, line of thinking itself. I think everyone has a part to play in this. So it would be a mistake for politicians to try to take this on without getting the benefit of people who have been in this industry, whether it's regulated or, or illicit market. Very, very insightful. Perfect. Uh, David, um, you know, you're a gmp -er. Do you think that the USP um, standards are in line with what you'd like to see adopted? You know, we have GMP standards. Do we really need the USP? Um, and I'm talking about cultivation specifically, you know, just to kind of drill down just a little bit. Uh, your thoughts? Well, I'm I'm in such favor of what the USP uh, expert panel, which you know included Dr. Russo, published that I've opened up uh, three standard specification work items through ASTM International, which I know they also cited there, um, on the different uh, chemovars or of or flavors, shall we say, um, of cannabis, right? So the high THC, the low THC cultivars, and in between. And they provide a very straightforward and robust um, outline that, yeah, every state and country should be following. I mean, there were folks from Health Canada and the National Resource Council, Research Council of Canada involved in this work. Um, they looked at a lot of data throughout, you know, multiple markets and um, built it off of, you know, herbal products, which there are guidelines for as well. There are pharmacopoeial monographs for that as well. So I really, um, I couldn't agree more with what, you know, Ethan said in terms of it's it's unfortunate and the lack of kind of press it's gotten. I know we we spoke about it during one of our earlier podcasts. And so um, I know it's it's out there and I think, you know, a couple things, one, recognizing how quickly or not so quickly policy works just because you know Colorado and Maryland are the only ones that seem to have taken uh, reached out to the USP doesn't mean that there's not more momentum to be had um, again I'll specifically cite ASTM with kind of you know Jamaica having adopted several of their regulations and um, you know I just want to add to Kim's point which I think is well well said we don't work in silos and um, uh, the analogy I like to use is uh, somebody may have the cure for cancer in an oversimplified way, but if they can't communicate it and articulate it, then have we really cured anything? So um, we need to figure out how to meet the industry where it's at. We also need to understand how to write policy. I don't know anything about writing policy, but I can be a scientist and I'm, I'm an okay business person. So we need, I need to work with a policy expert and a legal expert to get that translated into policy for public good. And that's, I think, one of the challenges that they face. So I like to give them credit where credit is due, but we got to set them up with success. On that, on that piece of policy, you know, part of the problem is that this industry is just so new. You know, there's so much information that is coming to the forefront um, that has been sort of embedded for years just by practice of people operating. And now that it's all, you know, on Fox News and MSNBC and it's, you know, this state legalized and medical this and 
of adult use that it's um all seems to be happening at once at least it feels like it so there's this urgency to have everything happen overnight mm -hmm. and really we need to look at like the 30,000 foot view where the public policy itself just changed on cannabis right we went from it was this illicit substance this you know really bad taboo thing to be involved in you're in jail for it people's lives are ruined to now it's billion dollar industry um, that everyone is clamoring to be a part of and it's still federally illegal so we really have to think about like okay this is a marathon it's not a sprint <laughs> this comes out today we need to give some time for it to be adopted we have to have some um, industry the stakeholders have to take advantage of it have to know about it and have to adopt it and then they have to promote it and stand it up as something that you know is is a uh, the way that we should be doing things. So I would say give it some time, um, but it really is about adoption on a wide scale from people all across the industry. Yeah, excellent, if, excellent. If I could just quickly add to, let's not also forget that this published in April and for states like even Colorado where the Department of Public Health and Environment is one of the main overseers of this industry, they're dealing with COVID. <laughs> um, so they're also trying to deal with the pandemic in life. And so I think, you know, 2020 is not over yet. I don't want to wish for, uh, I don't have any predictions about 2021, but um, th this is a timeless article, and I, I'm optimistic that in the coming months and years, more states will adopt it, and uh, we'll see some harmonization and safety best practices adopted. So, Nick, I'm going to go to you to close this out. Um, you know, my question I hope you might be able to answer is, are they expecting too much too soon? You know, you put a scientific article out there in a journal the average American doesn't even know exists, and you're expecting everyone to read it. Maybe they should have had boots on the ground and giving some presentations and letting people know. Did they miss a science communication opportunity, or is it just it, it just too early to, like, expect people to adopt it? What, what are your thoughts? So I... I think the article was well received and well noticed in the science heavy side of the industry and in the cannabis interested part of the science industry. But the problem with that is that a lot of what's happening in the cannabis industry, it's just about still now. You're, I mean, if you can even grow it and sell it, you're lucky. I mean, there's folks in so many states that are just trying to get a license. Um, get standards set up, all this kind of stuff, right? So um, definitely, Jehan, um, there is a lot of work to do in communicating, science communications, getting the news out. Um, one thing that I just want to say um, to bring it uh, to, to something that everyone can understand, whether they're scientists or not, um, that I thought was really poignant in the article was that they pointed something out that Washington doesn't require testing for pesticides on rec products till today. Oregon doesn't require testing of heavy metals till today. I work in California currently. I've seen humongous batches of cannabis fail for both of these things. And California didn't even start testing for fungi and microbials mandatory until um, I think the beginning of 19, right? So I'm just uh, trying to bring it uh, to just highlight a point that the article is making that the reason, be it USP, be it whatever federal, whatever harmonized universal standard, it matters because uh, consumers are experiencing differential levels of safety. And that's not really fair to the consumer and especially to the patient. Excellent points, everyone. 
All right, it's time to go into our rapid fire science where we go around providing brief commentary and a discussion about these uh, our two articles for today. And our first article is entitled Good Manufacturing Practice Compliance is Not Optional from the book Food Safety Lessons for Cannabis Infused Edibles by um, Kathy Knudsen. And I hope I'm saying that name right because I really like the book. Let's start with David. You're our resident GMP expert. You obviously have a bias here when it comes to GMP, but I just want to ask you simply, do you like this chapter? Do you like this book? Why should people read it? Yeah, so not only am I obviously uh, somewhat biased in terms of the GMP uh, being in our name of the business, um, but I, I did reach out to Kathy shortly after it was um, published and, and purchased it and spoke with her. Um, she serves on another committee at the National Cannabis Industry Association along with myself. And, um, you know, I, I think if I were to try to take the bias out and just quote one line, if I say nothing else but this from her chapter four, where she talks about GMP certification is earned, the, the two sentences are, the food industry and dietary supplement industry would never think to label their product as coming from a GMP compliant facility. The food industry and dietary supplement industry know the product safety is built on GMPs and that GMPs are a given. And, um, you know, I think that that kind of rests my case on where I stand. And for all the right reasons that it produces and ensures, not guarantees, but it provides systems and tools to prevent issues um, that can lead to product safety issues, such as pathogen, mold outbreaks, heavy metals, all those other things that whether we're testing for them or not, you should have the controls in place so that there's no surprises when you get to the final test. Very, very good points. Um, Nigam, the, the chapter also talks about training absolutes. Um, and I'd just like to ask you, you know, some of your thoughts either about the training that is kind of prescribed in this book. Um, you know, uh, the author makes this kind of quip about, you know, she likes to ask uh, cannabis uh, employees if they give these pro products to a loved one. Uh, why or why not? Um, but she does uh, kind of outline some specific areas of training that are needed. That's that really struck me. But you know, did that resonate with you, or are there other sections of the chapter that you were just kind of spoke to you? Yeah. So um, I, I'll speak to the training, and then there's something else I wanted to bring up. So on the training, I'm gonna relate this to my own experience working in the organic chemistry lab. So this is something where you take, like for myself, I'm a college sophomore and you go into the lab where you're dealing with um, solvents and substances that are extremely dangerous if they come in contact with your skin, much less your eyes or you inhale them or whatever, right? So there's this huge culture of training and safety and oversight and um, kind of like generational passing of knowledge, all these things, right? So um, having kind of lived through that and spent a decade in that realm, uh, I can only, you, you know, I can profess to the benefits of this. So training is huge. Um, David, I'm so happy you said that quote because I wrote down that exact same quote because it is just so money, you know, they're basically saying people who know how to do things safely would never tout GMP. Why would you tout it? It's not something to tout. So anyways, um, I uh, wanted to bring up one other item 
that I thought was really interesting for, for my own perspective, because having come out of this realm of, you, you know, being a chemist and even now um, I do work actively um, with a cannabis formulator as well. So they said that um, pharmaceutical in the chapter that said pharmaceutical GMPs will not be addressed here due to the general agreement in the cannabis industry that cannabis infused edibles will not be regulated as a drug will be regulated as a food or dietary supplement. So cool, but tell that to the people five miles from where I live making dry powdered inhalers for cannabis or tell that to the people who I know who have drip clinics who want to do CBD drip. Um, tell them it's not a pharmaceutical. So anyways, um, just a thought. Good points. Good points. Yeah. Um, I think if I can add to that, you know, there is a lot to consider and to just take a high level uh, holistic perspective on GMPs and, you know, without diving into the nitty gritty, staying at, you know, about 10 to 20,000 feet, GMPs and preventative controls are kind of one and the same. And you can apply them across dietary, food, and pharma. And where I really advocate for is this, you know, concept of a risk-based approach, which is what is the final product? Oh, is it going into an IV drip bag? Does that mean there's needles involved? Does that mean that sterilization is an issue because we're direct injecting? Oh, yes. Okay. Now we need to have GMPs, but our GMPs need to go a slightly bit further from, hey, let's make sure there's no black mold growing in this room to let's actually verify and make sure that where our particle counts are under almost zero, right? And that's the critical component. And this at least allows for a framework of here's where you need to begin guys and you know to your point about uh, so I'm th I'm thankful that a non-biased person uh, such as a nigum without uh, GMP and his business name can uh, pick up on the same words that I did and uh, you know I think it's really important too to mention the training uh, the critical paramount of training and back to you know GMPs aren't anything to tout about it's like bragging that hey i filed my irs taxes on time this year like you don't go around saying oh i'm a big deal because i paid my taxes or i actually got a business license to operate and uh so i think that same approach needs to be applied but there's still a big mystery about what gmps are in the industry and and how it applies and the importance of them so it's it's part of the learning curve that kind of goes back to everything with regulations and wasn't built overnight uh, excellent. Um, Kim, I'd like to ask you a question. You know, as an advocate, um, and for the, all the other advocates out there who are trying to improve their state regulations, improve the safety of their products, in your experience, has you know, bringing GMP documents or resources to regulators, is, is it well received? Is it something they want to read, they want to hear? They're like, oh, thank you, now I can improve this. Or they're like, what's a GMP? Um, you know, have you had have you had much so yeah. I not specifically not I have not had specific experience with GMP, but when it comes to like overall standards for testing or quality, I think it really ends up being, in my experience, it ends up being a very a decision that is heavily dependent upon the regulators themselves and relevant to the states that they are in. Um, they I think tend to rely on their local experts in Massachusetts. We um, put a lot of like the responsibility for regulating or all the responsibility for regulating pesticides on the Department of Agricultural Resources because that's what they do, right? Um, but you would think that then they would choose to regulate and put regulations that would actually put the stuff into practice so that people could cultivate 
uh, and safely do so and give a turn out a good product, but they still kind of just punt. And I don't know if it has to do with the, uh, again, the federal, the way that the federal government um, chooses to not regulate or continue to have uh, illegal cannabis, but it is something that the, there is no standard practice on, there is no standard uh, approach to, it's very much, again, just state by state, when we make references to, say, um, cross-validation. Right? Oh, jeez. Oh, yeah. oh, I'm so yeah. glad you mentioned that word. Go for <laughs> Go so on. Talking about, so there's things like process validation, and those words get floated up to regulators. They never are heard from again, and it's just this willing unwillingness to budge from that having that punting that happened, at least in Massachusetts it is. We have very stringent testing standards in some respects, and in other respects, it's very vague in general and and to the detriment of the industry. So um, you know, I don't I don't know that I can give much more than to say it's an independent decision in, in my in my travels that folks seem to be making because they believe it's the right thing to do, not because of any um, particularly prescribed standard of what is the right thing to do. If I can add, um, and, you know, to that point, the, you, you bring up points that I think we discussed a bit with like Ethan's article or Ethan's interview in the Salon article and other places where, um, and bring back to the FDA and let's just, you know, it's a federal issue because the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act has bestowed that authority on the FDA and the USDA for, you know, almost a century for many valid reasons, because food is not a state by state thing. Food is a global now a global kind of market. And um, it, the to no fault of the, you know, state commissions, they've never dealt with GMP. This is not their world. It's they've never heard of it and they've never had to. And now all of a sudden are they expected to just magically know about it? And now they're magically uh, required to understand it and know how to implement it. And, you know, process validation is, is not a simple concept. Um, it is in conceptual, but how it actually, the evidence that you need to get to, to be able to prove it, um, thinking about, you know, what you guys have done in the labs and, uh, you know, as an organic chemist, it's not just a simple design of experiment, whip it out, run three tests, life is good. Other statistics, um, how do we know that things are consistent? What are all the variables? Was it Jehan doing the test or was it Nigam doing the test? Did Jehan pipe at the same way Nigam did? And uh, do we trust him? Was he trained? Um, you know, there's so many questions hey, that need to go into it. Don't, don't bring <laughs> me into this. If, if anyone is upset about their cannabis being too safe and clean and standardized, they should be mad at you because you're the GMP guy. <laughs> So if, if, if you have a problem with your cannabis and process validation and, you know, generally being free of contaminants and meeting standards, send an angry email to the GMP collective saying, I want a certain amount of heavy metals in my products. <laughs> <laughs> Info at gmpcollective.com. I look forward to the, uh, the discourse. Well, I mean, <laughs> I would just, can I just really quick go back to say, to add that I think everybody wants safe products. I mean, you know, everyone wants safe, clean, effective products that do what they say they're going to do, that taste good, that look nice, and that don't cost a lot. Um, getting to that point is, again, I go back to my comment earlier, like, we just legalized cannabis. Yep. We just stood up the very beginnings of this industry. Things that are happening now are not always going to be happening, and there's stuff that isn't happening now that will be later we have to get there. Uh, this is the process. And I think, um, you know, that desire to have a perfect product, it's not going to go away. It's going to get stronger, but we need to be patient and willing to do the work to get there. So 
let's, I think everyone, everyone just took a step back <laughs> and calmed down and, you know, get made, gained and then maintain perspective. That's really in my mind, how we get, um, you know, get, move these balls forward to where we're all being um, taken care of and benefiting from the plant the way that we all want to. Excellent points. You know, and, and speaking of, you know, being somewhere and trying to get out of it and getting to a better place, I think that's a great time to transition to our next article. Um, it's, a, it's a topic I've never seen really that well researched before, and that is a study on bad trips from psychedelic. And so this article is entitled, Making Bad Trips Good, How Users of Psychedelics Narratively Transform Challenging Trips into Valuable Experiences, published in the International Journal of Drug Policy. So this is a very interesting article. Um, the authors state that stories are not just talk. They're powerful and have real therapeutic effects. And the trauma literature has recognized that there are narrative mechanisms, which are essential for things like um, coping with the trauma and other unpleasant experiences. So when trauma narratives have a coherent story and enable positive self-evaluation, they might have an impact on processing those emotions. They may have an impact on mental health benefits. Um, you know, Negam, I want to ask you, you know, uh, are the researchers on to something here or are they tripping over bad trips? Well, I read this article in detail. I think this is so interesting. I think they're on to something. And you know what? Usually I'm the guy who's like getting, uh, who's a little bit critical of these, um, anecdotal the people will publish a paper that's basically they compiled a lot of stories and they publish a paper but what's cool about this is that it's a paper about storytelling and why storytelling matters right so um i really really enjoyed just the way they framed this and also some of the data that came out of it so uh, i have some some other comments for later but i just want to toss a few specifics out there uh for the listeners so this was um, a 50-person study. Uh, these folks had to be over 18, experienced with psychedelics, and had used a uh, psychedelic in about the last year, preferably. Oh, and the other big qualifier was they had to do in-person interviews with a sociologist at the university doing the study. So part of the reason I, I get down on some of these other studies is because it's an anonymous online survey that's posted on Leafly or Facebook, which is fine, but it's a lower bar than bring yourself and your face and your nests and your, and your ID card to the university and sit down and talk to somebody. <laughs> right. So anyways, um, those are the qualifiers. There were 50 participants, um, which for an example, the earlier, uh, when we were talking about stories, when we were talking about psilocybin, that one only had 19 participants, right? So it's a little bit larger. Um, and the other thing is that the substances these people were looking at out of 50, 37 had used LSD, 36 psilocybin, uh, 20 2CB, which I wonder if people listening know what 2CB is, maybe look that one up. And um, 20 had used uh, DMT or ayahuasca. So the, uh, that's a little background. I, I want to pass the mic and, and then I'll share um, so, some other thoughts before we conclude. You know, um, Kim, again, you know, you probably have out of all of us the most relevant experience in, in policy and advocacy. You know, when I hear about bad trips, I think, how do you label these products? Is that, you know, 
Is that a warning label? Does it go on there? Um, how, I'm, I'm just wondering, how would you even discuss <laughs> taking this article and maybe trying to destigmatize bad trips or make regulators feel more comfortable about these experiences? Or maybe there's another piece here, like I'm thinking of also business enterprises that are looking at marketing psychedelics and generally only marketing the positive side. But it's it's not a it's a well-known thing. If you I've talked to a lot of people who've done ayahuasca ceremonies, and the first part of that is a bad trip. And after you purge yourself and get over that, that's when um, the magic happens. Um, but you know, what's your impression? Do you have some insights to share with us uh, from this article? Sure. So I thought you were at first. I thought you were going to say Kim has the most experience of bus with tripping or, you know, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I don't know about that. So anyway, um, I, I think that this is actually not terribly different than what we are already experiencing with cannabis. Whereas we all have such different endocannabinoid systems. And like, I think about when the Girl Scout cookies, now GSC, first came out, or at least first, I became, first became aware of them back in like 20, 14, 20, you know, five, six years ago. And I can't believe it was that long ago now, but anyway, that long ago. And I remember my husband, you know, he would use, use it or smoke it. And, um, like this, they're all just raving about it. So I was like, what? And they're gorgeous nuggets too, you know, so pretty smell wonderful, just really appetizing. And I would, I would use it and I would feel like I needed to go to the hospital. <laughs> it would just like, my mouth was dry. I was cold. My heart was racing. It was just like this crazy, overwhelming feeling. And I was like, maybe I'm just, you know, I'm watching Game of Thrones. Maybe I'm just like anxious or something. Try a different setting. I'm on the beach. Same thing. Like just, so it was just me, you know, that's just the way that I reacted to it. And I think, you know, in that, in those moments where the anxiety is building and, you know, you don't know where this is going to go, um, that can be the same as a bad trip where you start off, everything's fine. You look around, everyone's having a great time. And suddenly you start to feel different and you don't know where it's going to go. So yes, they, you know, have different flavors to them, certainly cannabis versus psychedelics um, and unpleasant experiences, but marketing, that's kind of the same. So in cannabis, we have to tell people, um, start, go slow and low, um, or rather, yeah, go slow and low. So you wait, you take a small dose, you wait, um, take some more. We give advice on people to how to take this. And I, I think much of that would carry over to psychedelics were those to be marketed largely to a population. And I also think the setting in which you use them um, would be far more clinical. To an extent, I think you would have, um, you'd be marketing an entire experience as opposed to just like take this and do this. Um, and it's it's safe. I think we've done a lot of work to normalize cannabis. There's been work to normalize psychedelics. We're not quite there where we are with cannabis. So that would change the way in which you'd market it. And I think we as we saw with cannabis, you approach it from like this medical necessity. And that's something that um, is compassion and it's palatable that way to people. They're more willing to accept it. If that's how you do this, if you do the same thing with uh, psychedelics, I think that normalizes it in a in a way that is more pal palatable than just go buy it at CVS, go buy it at the corner store, good luck, you know, get your infusion um, along with your medical card kind of thing. So um, yeah, I don't I don't see us being too terribly different. I don't want to take up all the chatting time here, but um, I think the way we think about it largely depends on the uses for it and who is going to be using it. You know, certainly if we're talking about, you know, the psychedelic benefits of um, 
ayahuasca for children who are suffering from ADHD, like that's going to be a very, very different uh, conversation than um, schizophrenic adults, you know? Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot that goes into it, but I, I can see a context in which it's marketable, um, just involves some creativity. Excellent points. I'm going to go to David next. I have a challenge for you, David. I don't want you to talk about the article. I want you to demonstrate some applied knowledge here. So tell us a story. Challenge accepted, Jehan. And uh, this is um, firsthand as the um, observer, secondhand as the participant. And a, a good friend of mine uh, who's a you know, semi-pro athlete, a big biker, and uh, recovering Mormon, which should set the context. Um, so, you know, it wasn't until his late 20s that he'd really um, discovered caffeine and, you know, crazy things like that and alcohol and uh, naturally found his way into, you know, enjoying cannabis for relaxation and uh, psilocybin for, you know, mind clearing uh, opportunities uh, as he found it. And um, going through a divorce, going through a, uh, a, a fiance breakup um, through COVID, you know, add some trials and tribulations to your life. And, uh, and one day he's uh, hanging out and he's like, uh, just steeping some what I thought was tea and it's like no I've got some mushrooms there and I'm uh, just steeping it and I'm going to go on a, a century ride which you know a hundred mile bike ride no big deal right because um, that's his thing and he's like I'm just gonna clear my mind uh, you know I've got to I just want to go out and just get out into the countryside so um, yes um, question so I thought the whole point of psychedelics was taking a trip so you didn't have to leave, but you're telling me this is an integral part of the plan. I mean, yeah, it sounds I, amazing. I'm sorry to, to interrupt, but um, we might have to do an HLI bicycle day, you know? <laughs> I, I think so. Yeah. You know, the trip of the trips. And uh, I think maybe you're, we're, we're getting to some, uh, you're bringing up a point of where I think the story ends, which is that, uh, Instead of making it on the century ride, I think he made maybe 20 miles to Boulder. And, uh, you know, being in the greater Denver area, there's a lot of great biking here. But um, you're also on bit, very busy roads where people are driving 60 miles an hour beside you. And I can't really fathom being uh, on a trip and a trip. And um, let's just say there were some tears on the side of the road. And I was surprised I did not get a phone call. But I did come back and find him, you know, passed it on the hammock a couple of hours later in the backyard, which is probably a much better place for him to be experienced the rest of the trip. And, uh, you know, I think looking back and reflecting, this is a few months ago, um, you know, the storytelling all comes full circle. And while it was a very painful experience for him at the time, I can imagine being a grown adult uh, crying on the side of a road and your, your bike bibs. Um, but then you know, having the reflection and some things that he's really talked about that he learned from that experience and that his brain came through. Um, so yeah, there's an interesting dissection of, you know, transcending storytelling into quantitative data for clinical purposes. And I think we need to you know, not forget that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, that, that was great, David. How Shakespearean of you, a trip within a trip. <laughs> a trip within a trip <laughs> turns into rom-com somehow. <laughs> uh, wow. That is some, that is a mind munchie. That is some good food for thought, David. Um, Nigam. Let's uh, let's come down back to the article for a little bit. Um, you know, you really did a deep dive on this article. Uh, bring us home with a couple of, of highlights. I'd love to. So, as I mentioned, I, I really like this. And, and for folks who are interested, you know, we post all the links 
uh, to the articles um, for the podcast. It's on Spotify. It's on Apple. The links are right there. So um, just read the abstract and or the conclusion of this article, and you're going to get a lot of what I'm sharing here. So I'm just going to share a few quotes from, from those sections. So one thing that I thought was so interesting is they're talking about these bad trips and they're talking about how experienced users actually commonly reject this notion of a bad trip. So let me just read this. Most users said that these experiences could be avoided by following certain rules based on uh, tacit knowledge in the subcultures of users. Possessing such knowledge was part of a symbolic boundary work that distinguished between drug culture insiders and outsiders. Some also rejected the validity of the term bad trip altogether, arguing that such experiences reflected the lack of such competence. So uh, I thought that was really interesting that they want to do the study on bad trips, and then you find the people who know about psychedelics, and they're like, no, there is no bad trip, <laughs> right? So you got you just need to experience it more. So the other thing um, that I thought connected really well there is that, and, and this is a big point of the article, is that they're saying there is increasing evidence suggesting that such unpleasant experiences may also be important for the therapeutic effect of the psychedelics. So essentially what these people were saying is that Two, twofold. One is that by experiencing something bad, by living through it, by knowing that they came out on the other side, they became mentally stronger. The other thing related to the storytelling, the narrative that's in the title of the article, is that just the fact of talking with other people and saying, this is what I experienced. This was the good. This is the bad. This is how I came out of the bad. This is how I came out on the other side was important for them as well. So I want to pose um, one final thing uh, before we start uh, playing a fun game here at the end is that um, Jayhan, you had said something really cool on, on a prior episode where we were talking about how so commonly uh, it, it's explained by these companies or by these kind of researchers new to the field that psychedelics, and they talk about it with psilocybin a lot, dissolves the ego. And Jehan, you were talking about an author and you had made this comment about, no, the ego's good. The ego wrote the book, right? The, and uh, so listeners... <laughs> the, can... the, the, yeah, the ego puts on my gi when I go do jujitsu, right? That's what ties the belt. Like Exactly. You know? So, and like, David, like, is the ego riding the bike on the highway or is that a different <laughs> part of the brain, you know? So, anyways... Or is the ego still on the side of the highway? Who knows? <laughs> right. So um, anyways, uh, the, the note I wrote here is that I said ego dissolution here is listed as a bad trip experience, um, in, but it's a common claim in, in these, you know, in this emerging psilocybin psychedelic industry that that's how it works, that the ego dissolution is the purpose. That's the good experience. So I, I think that's, um, as Jayhan likes to say, that's a strong mind munchie for the listener um, to have a debate around the uh, kitchen table tonight with the family. Is ego dissolution from psilocybin a positive or negative outcome of psychedelics? Thank you uh, so much, Nigam, for that. That is uh, that is a very good mind munchie. And and just to clarify for the listeners, there actually is, is to Nigam's point, there is no clear definition 
of what constitutes a bad trip. And, and even the researchers, I think they put bad trip in quotation marks in, in their study title. All right, for today's game, we're going to play Guess the Cannabinoid. So today our group will be playing for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific thought. And we're gonna be having some fun with this 20 questions style game. Now I have picked a cannabinoid and the group is gonna ask yes or no questions to determine what cannabinoid it you know, what cannabinoid it is and, you know, is it from a plant? Can you chew on it? Or, or whatever the question might be. Um, all I ask is, is no guessing until four questions are asked. Um, so let's take it away. Uh, I have picked the cannabinoid and I'm going to throw it out to the group and take some notes here. So anyone like to open the questioning? I have a question. Is this a cannabinoid that comes from a plant, or is it synthetically or biosynthetically derived? Um, I will take the first part of that yes or no question, and yes, it is uh, from a plant. Easy peasy, then. That eliminates a lot of crazy things we could guess. Yes. David, I see you smiling. Do you have a question? Is it... Um... In its original form, is it acidic or is it not acidic? Um, it is not a primary metabolite. Okay. Jayhan, can you tell the readers what you mean by primary metabolite? Okay, so uh, you know when they come when it comes out of the trichome, you know it's not an artifact or sorry, it, it's not um, it's not basically a, basically it's not an acidic cannabinoid in that. It's not a primary compound the plant makes. A lot of the stuff we love about cannabis is from storage, is from, you know, the extraction process and things like that. Understood. In a widely known or in a more public setting, in a more commercial setting, would it have attributes that, in, that tend towards sleep? Yes. That is one of the uh, associations with this compound, at least according to marketing. Mm -hmm. Oops, gonna, I gave away too much. I'm going to try. Right. I'm going to try hard to ask a fourth. Guess. I'm going to. Well, Kim, we have to ask four questions. I'm going to try oh, hard right. to ask. I'm going to try hard <laughs> to ask a fourth question now. Um, here's one. Um, Jehan, is it a? Um, uh, you know, we hear about uh, like Delta 9 THC. Is it a different form of THC, you know, like a Delta 8 or Delta 10 or Delta 11? Is it one of these other deltas? Uh, no, it is not um, part, part of, it is, it, is not a, it is not a different isomer of THC in the strictest sense. Yeah. Um, I will say it could get caught up in the analog law, though. All right, you are now welcome to guess. Um, a guess counts as a question. You, you were at number four, so real quick. Is it a plant cannabinoid? Yes. Is it a primary metabolite, like an acidic cannabinoid? No. Um, is it, let's say, marketed for sleep? Uh, yes, I, I've seen it marketed for sleep. Um, is it, uh, you know, one of the series of the isomers of THC? No. Ready? Okay, did you have a guess? Yeah. Is it CBN? Yes, it is. Oh my gosh. Yes. Wow. Wow. 
I, I was going tell. to ask if it was a degradant product of uh, THC or an oxidative Yay. product. That's great. I, I, the one of the reasons I chose this compound <laughs> is because one of my favorite things about it is that it was isolated first in like the 1890s, and they thought it was the active ingredient because all the cannabis was not stored properly and like was coming on ships, might have been in a barrel for a year before it got to the States. And then they're like, well, this is the most abundant compound. It must be the active ingredient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but good job. I can't tell if you guys are really good at this or I just... Um, not as good as Brent is at doing uh, the 20 questions game, but well done, everyone. Uh, cool. <laughs> well, the uh, only sad thing is that the, is that the listeners didn't get to see my dance. <laughs> <laughs> my, my winning uh, dance. <laughs> awesome. Well, I, I'd like to thank everyone for listening to our show today, however you got here by clicking or tapping on us. Um, we'd also give, like to give a very, very big thank you to our trusty audio engineer. This is edited and mixed by Joe Leonardo. And I'd like to thank all our guests again, Nigam, David, and especially Kim for coming on the show for the first time. Y'all did wonderful. It was such a blast to hang out with you. Thank you so much for inviting me and for having me. Great to talk to you guys soon. It was a pleasure to meet you. This has been fun. You too. All right, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye.